You're basically running toward a cliff and you feel amazing and you're sprinting and then suddenly things can just change very, very quickly when you reach a point where that energy storage is like completely depleted. Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin and welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show, where I talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game, and also what they're passionate about beyond the fight with gravity. I am so happy that y'all are here as today we're chalking up for a chat with the deeply thoughtful and wise beyond her years, Melina Costanza. Now, Melina's been a household name in the youth competition circuit for over a decade. She is a two-time youth national champion and a three-time collegiate national champion and has consistently been a member of the U.S. team every year since 2010. After some time away from climbing to earn her physics degree at UPenn, it was no surprise when she showed up again as an undeniably dominant force on the open circuit, winning every North American Cup she entered in both lead and bouldering disciplines. She rounded out the year as the 2021 U.S. Bouldering National Champion, and at the 2022 U.S. National Team Trials, Melina took gold in lead and secured her spots on the lead national team, bouldering national team, and boulder and lead combined national team. In summary, she is wicked good, and as insightful as this chat is with regard to her training and her performance, the reason that this is one of my favorite interviews that we have ever done on The Struggle is how real and raw and challenging and beautiful this conversation is as Melina opens up, I think for the first time ever, on her struggles with disordered eating and its insidious nature on so many in the comp world. Y'all, this conversation is layered with insight, humor, struggle, emotion, beta, and also a ton of stoke. Y'all are in for a beautiful ride here today. Now, first, how about a little update on my own personal climbing here? I am fully into project mode on this classic 12D at the red called Jesus Wept, and man, is it humbling. Y'all, the red point crux is like 50 feet up after some really hard climbing, and there is a sticky permadraw right as I pull into a heinous pocket sequence. Telling you right now, I'm not going to let that perm sap my flow, and that is why I'm swapping in one of my Petzl gin draws in its place on my send goes. Why? Well, because I need every efficiency I can get, and with these draws, the rope just drops in like butter, and of course I have full confidence in the safety of my Petzl gear. These draws are tested to withstand 100,000 open and close cycles, which I am probably on track right now to test myself on this dang route. So look, if you're in the market for a new set of draws, check out the gins by Petzl, or everything, in fact, that Petzl makes at your local gear shop. They're so rad, they're so good, they're so reliable. Pop on over to Petzl.com to access the inaccessible. And the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle is our friends over at Fizzy Vantage. You guys, I love this stuff, and you know who else loves Fizzy Vantage? Today's crusher guest, Melina Costanza. Why? Well, it's science-backed nutrition designed by climbers for climbers to help us crush. And speaking of crush, that's the name of one of my favorite products of theirs to help me level up with some jitter-free energy when I need it the most. Case in point, I took a day off from the project last week and I checked out this uber classic 11C called Witness the Citrus, which is this incredible 95 feet of consistently overhung power, endurance, magic. It is mega, it is pumpy, and it went down surprisingly easy with the help of Crush by Fizzy Vantage. 
Yo, I do not do well with coffee or like typical pre-workouts. They make my heart race and they give me anxiety, but not so with Crush, which is designed to boost energy and focus without the jitters. And it works. It really has been a game changer for me when I need to try hard and I highly recommend it, along with all of Fizzy Vantage stuff. So hit that link in your show notes or use checkout code STRUGGLE15 to save 15% off any full price nutrition order at fizzyvantage.com. Check it out. I think you're going to love crush. All right, y'all, just a little warning here. Melina opens up about her struggles with disordered eating in this interview, so please be kind to yourself if this is a, a challenging subject for you. Personally, I found this conversation to be very nuanced, uh, very thoughtful, and, and ultimately really inspiring. So I hope you enjoy it, and without further delay, let's get real with Melina Costanza. I've got two dogs and a cat at my feet right now. I don't have any room for my friggin' feet because of these animals in my podcast closet. They like to come in here and keep me company. That's adorable. And that's the one thing I miss you, about being here, the animals. Yeah, but you got friends with animals there, right, in Salt Lake now that you're there. I mean, that's like having friends with animals is better than even owning animals. AJ's dog, Sunny, is, oh my gosh. Sunny might be more famous than AJ at Oh this my gosh, yeah. No, Sunny's been blowing up on Instagram. <laughs> totally. Sonny's got more Instagram traffic than I've got for sure. <laughs> cool. Well, I think we can just kind of jump right in if that sounds good. Melina, welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. So I guess before we get specific, before we kind of get into the nitty gritty on your training and your performance, I'd like to get your perspective on struggle as a rock climber. Like what is your relationship and how do you view struggle as a climber? Um, I think that when you participate in anything, whether it be sports, whether it be work, whether it be anything at a high level, um, you become very acquainted with the concept of struggle. I think that you can't really get to an elite level at anything without facing some struggle in a lot of different areas in life. And I think that in terms of, of athletics, um, that can come in a lot of forms that can look like struggle with training and motivation. It can look like struggle with learning how to rest properly. I think a lot of people overdo it. Um, I think it can look like being feeling excited going into a competition, but not really knowing how to manage your nerves and letting that be counterproductive. It can look like nutrition. And I think that it can take, there's so many different ways that athletes, that people in general um, struggle. And I think that it's really interesting and very humanizing to look at it and to be able to talk about it um, with other people. Yeah. And you've been climbing for quite a while. I mean, you're, you're young, you know, relatively speaking, you're in your early twenties, just out of college. One might not think that you've been struggling as a climber for, for very long, but that's not true. You've been climbing um, since you were a very little kid. I mean, you're a two-time youth national champion, three-time collegiate national champion. You've been climbing at a high level for a long time. If you look back just kind of as you've grown as a climber, has your perspective and your relationship with struggle evolved from when you were maybe a teenager to college and now, you know, moving beyond? Yeah, absolutely. I think that when I was younger, a lot of it came from this place of of, of having a healthy level of competition um, is hard, I think, when you're a child, when what you really want to do is win and you can't really keep your... It's hard to keep perspective. It's hard to remember that you're doing it because you love it, that everyone's doing it because they love it and it's not you against the other person. It's really 
you trying to show all the hard work that is like trying to <laughs> show what you've been trying to put into it. Um, and I think that as a young climber, a lot of it was just very mental. Um, whereas now I think there are a lot more aspects. It's very much uh, a lot more multifaceted. Um, I think that I've met a lot of struggles, especially in the past year, since I've been a lot more into the competition scene again, a lot more struggles with how to balance a personal life with a competition life, having a healthy amount of things outside of climbing, things that I enjoy to do, um, and not really, I, I think I've struggled with balance a good amount um, in the past. I think that there have also been struggles with uh, nutrition, with training, with still with mindset, but in a lot of different ways, a lot of it being the pressure that I put on myself. Um, and I think that just as I've gotten older, I it's not that I'm struggling more, it's that my struggles, I think, are a little bit deeper and more nuanced, maybe. And I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, it's a very unique thing for a child to be put in such a highly competitive environment, regardless of it could be academics, it could be sports, it could be the arts kids who excel at an activity, you're kind of thrown into the deep end to some extent. And so how did you, through you know some of your younger years, and we'll get more into the current stuff as we go forward here, but in those younger years, who did you look to to kind of help you handle some of those unique struggles to being like a, a child competitor? I have been really lucky um, over my years competing in youth to have had a lot of very positive, influential coaches um, who I've looked up to a lot. The first being Tyson Shaney, the coach, the head coach of Vertical World Climbing Team. Um, but also just traveling and competing on the U.S. team, I think, gave me a lot of perspective. And I think a big thing I took away from that was all these people who I was so set on beating and the people that I kind of viewed as, like, only my competition. Um, suddenly we were on the same team. Suddenly we were friends. Suddenly we were traveling the world together having all these amazing experiences and being like, wow, we're all doing this because we like it a lot and because it is giving us these opportunities to do things that most people our age and most people of any age really don't get to do. And I think that I've had a lot of amazing coaches on the U.S. team as well who have watched me climb, have been noticed, <laughs> have noticed that I don't look like I'm having a lot of fun. And they kind of asked me, why are you even doing this? What is the point of being here at the world championship if you look like you're miserable the entire time. Um, and I think that a lot of t having a couple of comments like that gave me a lot more perspective and kind of taught me how to have fun. Um, and I think that ultimately that's been the biggest lesson I've ever taken away from climbing, especially in youth. Dig it. I love that. I think that gets lost even for people like myself, weekend warriors, because you go out and you have this expectation, you have an objective and you're working really hard for it. And sometimes you can get caught up in the outcome or whether you're performing that day or not. And every once in a while, I have to kind of knock myself on the head and be like, you know what? I'm out in nature. Like, I'm having fun. So that's great. It's great to get that perspective, too, from somebody like yourself who, who competes at the highest levels that it can and should still be fun. So that's I think that's pretty critical for all of us to, to take to heart. And I want to dive into more of that specifically as we get into kind of the, the mindset, the mental game chapter here. But first, let's start with training. Let's let's kind of geek out for a second. Melina, you have been training with fantastic coaches and teams almost your entire life. At this point in time, one might assume that you've got training totally dialed. Maybe you do. But when I ask you, where do you struggle in your training? What, what comes to mind? 
Well, I think that's pretty interesting because um, I I think I'm a very unique case in that I took actually a good amount of time off during college uh, after the youth circuit and didn't really get back into training, especially not competing um, until basically the last year, two years of my time in college. I think that taking that break was really good for me, a really good mental reset and to kind of remind me why I did it. But then coming back to it, I think I was coming back from a place of, oh, I'm doing this just for fun, just to kind of see what happens. Um, so and I was pretty much designing all my own training programs. I didn't know a lot about how the body worked, how people recover from workouts. In my brain, it was linear. It was the more you put in, the more you get out. And sure. I ended up, there were periods of time when I was absolutely destroying myself to a point where it was so counterproductive to performance. I was climbing like four grades lower in the gym than I had previously just because I was so broken down. I was spending mm. months on end where my fingers like didn't, I didn't have a single session where I wasn't bleeding on holds, which I know is very unsanitary wow. also. And so wait, what did, what did that look like? Was it just like super long sessions every day? Basically? Yeah, it was, it was basically, I, every day was about seven hours in the gym. Oh my God. Four-ish climbing, three just lifting or doing strength training. And my body just could not keep up with it. And people were telling me that my body gave up with it. And it ended up being, there was one day that was kind of a come to Jesus with um, Tonde, the route setter, who was the head setter of my gym for a while. And I was climbing with him. I was only using one foot because one of my feet had, I'd injured it climbing. And then I also had, was bleeding all over the holes. And he was like, look, this is not sustainable you are not climbing very well either because you are so tired. And if you just took two weeks completely off, you'd probably feel better than you've ever felt in your life. Um, so he directed me to some resources that were teaching me about periodization, teaching me about the benefits of rest. And I think that I ended up doing a lot of my own research, realizing that I didn't know what I was doing at all. Um, and then kind of looking toward people with more experience, more education. And I think that one of the biggest things I learned during that period was trying to outsource for the things that I don't know. I like being independent. I like doing my own thing. I like feeling self-sufficient. But at the same time, there are a lot of people who can be really useful assets to me. And I think that I learned to not be so opposed to help. So yeah, this is really fascinating. And I think, again, not particularly uncommon for people who get really psyched. They just want to train and like just go and no, climb. <laughs> and so you took some time off. And in how long was it? Was like about a year and a half or two years that you basically took off between youth and in college? Yeah, I didn't really climb. I didn't climb for at all, pretty much for six months after the youth circuit when I was starting to get into college, and then I was going maybe once a week after and kind of doing it super recreationally with people from school, more as like a social outlet than anything. Sure. And it wasn't until I competed kind of sporadically in my sophomore year of college. I did a few competitions, but wasn't necessarily training or performing. It was more, again, just to see friends, keep active, make sure that I was like at some point doing something other than just studying. Um, it wasn't until COVID when I went home for a period of time, actually, that I had a spray wall in my backyard. My brother and I basically spent every single day just training on the spray wall together. And it was, it was really fun being kind of in that bubble, you know, being able to not look at what anyone else is doing, not think about competition, not think about being better than anyone. It was exclusively just me and him. We were in the backyard training, trying to beat each other, trying to push each other. Um, and I think there was something very pure about that, that kind of 
reminded me why I loved it so much and why I wanted to start training to a high level again. Yeah, having that internal fire, that internal psych be the the main driver rather than any sort of kind of external um, pressure or reward seems to be a common theme here on the show and, and certainly allows one to push through struggle. Y- you mentioned that you put a focus on essentially outsourcing different aspects of your training or planning. W- what were those specifically? Like where where do you feel you excel in your own training knowledge and in planning and where have you sought outside advice or direction? Um, I think that maybe my biggest asset is that I am very, very self-motivated. Um, I think that I never need anyone to tell me to go to the gym. I never need anyone to tell me what, how long to stay there or like kind of enforce that I do these certain things. I'm very motivated, but in terms of outsourcing, I think one of the big things is was learning about periodization, like I mentioned before, learning about how to rest, how to time specific, uh, like cross training specifically. I think that I was always going hard with the cross training to the point where I wasn't really seeing any benefits, especially during competition season. I would just be too broken down to really perform. And that would be like weightlifting, um, cardio, like bench yeah. squat, deadlifts, that kind of thing. Like what, what kind of cross training were you into? Yeah, it was a lot of weightlifting. It was a lot of strength training, especially upper body. I never, only recently I started getting into legs. I realized that just letting my legs atrophy was not actually the best thing I could do. Um, contrary to popular belief in the sport of climbing. But That's right. <laughs> yeah, I, um, it was a lot of strength training and mixed in with cardio. I think I just kind of liked doing the cardio to feel like I was, I was sweating. I was putting in the work. A lot of it, I think for me is mental too. Um, feeling like feeling the burn, feeling the ache, feeling like I have put in enough work. And I think that to me, it always just felt like if I'm not sore after a practice, if I'm not tired, if I feel okay the next day, then I haven't done enough. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think that's something now that working with other more experienced, more educated professionals (laughs) Has um, I've learned that that is actually not the case and that I'll, there is so much merit to rest um, and to feeling good for multiple days on end. And I think that as much as I love putting in lots of hours, as much as I love feeling broken down and as rewarding as that is to me, that there is a better way to do it and a healthier outlet to, I think, express that. Like, I always want to be doing more, but there are other ways I can do it without breaking myself down physically. Sure. Yeah, I think for whatever reason, climbers are we're just gluttons for punishment. We always just want to be crawling out of the gym, you know, for whatever reason, it just like feels like we've done something. But of course, the research suggests otherwise. And so that sounds like that was um, a pretty big evolution for you now. Could you maybe just give us an overview? Like what does a typical week look like of on days and rest days and and maybe kind of the, the different energy systems you're hitting or the protocols that you're doing? Yeah. Um, I'm typically around three days on, one day off. I... Recently, I've been trying to shift focus. I think that going into team trials and into the lead World Cup season, I was feeling good in terms of endurance, but my power had been lacking from kind of neglecting bouldering for a long time. Mm -hmm. So recently, it's been kind of a shift toward focusing that first day exclusively on power, doing a lot of hard, like limit bouldering, spray wall, single move, double move, anything that's going to be really physically pushing me um, from a power standpoint. And that includes like campusing, um, strength training, like pulls, lock offs, that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I 
am trying to maybe start getting more into fingers. I know I recently listened to your episode with Allison, who's got maybe the strongest fingers of all time. <laughs> Legit. Um, and watching her train has been really inspiring to me and has kind of motivated me to start doing fingers, although I'm still pretty much lacking in that department. Um, yeah, she's, but, she said that you basically don't do much hangboarding at all or, or any hangboarding. Is that... I've done pretty much zero up to this point, actually. No kidding. So I think that the way that competition climbing has kind of trended, um, it's been away from crimps, especially bouldering. I think there were hardly any crimps in the entire World Cup circuit, which was pretty mind-blowing to me. I think it was a lot more body position. It was very delicate. It was a lot of slab climbing, a lot of volume climbing, a lot of big open hand holds. Mm -hmm. And I think that for bouldering, it's been kind of cool to shift my focus away from just gaining raw power and more toward movement. And I think that's one of the benefits that I've really seen from moving to Salt Lake is that you have so much, all the gyms will set commercial boulders that are very similar to the types of climbing you see in World Cups. Um, it's a lot of coordination moves. It's a lot of very delicate, very intricate um, body positioning climbs. And also I noticed during the World Cup circuit, I'd finish a bouldering round and feel not tired at all. And I'd finish a lead round and feel like I'd been hit by a truck. It was like a complete <laughs> shift from anything I'd ever expected. Um, so I definitely, yeah, I haven't done a lot of finger strength training uh, for that reason. I think that if I shifted more toward climbing outside, maybe I would put more emphasis on that. But where I'm at now, I think it hasn't been super critical. Um, but that's my first day. The second day is kind of a focus on power endurance, a lot of circuits, uh, spray wall type movement, and It'll start from anywhere from like 25 moves to 45 plus, just trying to get as many hard moves as I can in a row with long rests in between. Um, and and then are you resting day, on the wall on that? So like if you're doing 40 moves, it's like a million moves. Um, are you mixing like some limit moves and then trying to recover like on a jug or are you just trying to string together like as many hard moves as you can and then resting like on the mat for 10 minutes or something? Yeah, I think that it kind of depends on the day, but a lot of it is just as many hard moves as I can in a row. Um, if I'm trying to get it from instead of 25 moves to be 45 moves, I'll tone down each move kind of incrementally so that it's more feasible to do link more moves in a row. Sure. Um, sometimes I will do drills where I'll do a very hard climb, rest on something a little bit better, and then go into like another super hard climb just to kind of shift to that focus. But I think that it really just depends on the day. Um, and then the third day on will be some power endurance. A lot of times it's just volume. I like doing color circuits in the gym, for example, where I'll do every climb of a certain grade or like if for the gyms that have circuit or difficulty circuits, it'll be every climb in that set, basically, right. um, with as little rest as possible. Or I'll do four by fours, the classic fives. I think that there are a lot of different like kind of volume drills where a lot of it for me it's physical, but it also is mental. I like knowing that there's a day where I'm really beating myself down, where I'm putting in a ton of moves on the wall. And I think just in general, feeling like I've done enough is one of the things that, for me, mentally going into a competition, I want to feel like I worked as hard as I could. I want to feel like I, there's nothing I didn't do. There's nothing more that I could have done to prepare physically. Yeah, put it all out there. And then the next day is a full rest day? Or is there an active... You're smiling. Uh-oh. Is it are, are you are you still I, incapable of resting? I struggle a little bit. I haven't I'm not big on the full rest days and I know I probably should be. I know that science points to full rest days being a good thing, but it's hard for me to not do 
some form of strength training, some form of cardio, something active. Um, maybe that's just me being a little neurotic. <laughs> well, and you're and you're young, so I feel like you can, you know, like you're doing three days on, like I do one day on now, you know, at this point in my life, but I'm also not a professional athlete, but, you know, three days on, you're young, you're, you're probably recovering significantly faster. But what, what would that look like on that quote unquote rest day? Uh, what are what are you doing that's somewhat active still? Some days it's just cardio, and I think that I can kind of justify that as basically being rest because <laughs> it's not doing using any of the muscle groups that I would target in climbing. But also I kind of cycle through strength training like every three or four days I'll do like arms, um, like a certain arm workout, and then I'll like cycle in core, I'll cycle in different things. And I think that typically I wouldn't do anything like fingers or arms on that rest day just because... I do it so much throughout the three training days, but often it'll be like a lot of leg strength nowadays, or it'll be a big, like brutal core workout because even though those are things that you use in climbing, it's less noticeable. And if they're sore going into a, a first day on, um, you can still have a really fruitful session. Yeah. And it just seems like, especially with like boulder comps moving the way that, that as your experience was kind of away from crimps and more into movement, position, coordination, having stronger legs does seem, you know, like those real high steps or like some really engaged heel hooks and that kind of thing do seem maybe almost more critical now than just raw finger strength. So has that impacted the way that you train? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that years ago, it was a lot of really overhung moves, a lot of compression. I think also living in Philadelphia for a while, the slab setting there is a little bit limited. But there are a lot of really, really strong, I was climbing with a lot of strong dudes for a while and a lot of guys who are really macho and like to do the <laughs> super overhung, super compression-y, like jumping for crimps on like the 50 degree walls type stuff. Sure. And that was actually like maybe my biggest weakness um, for a while when I was younger. And I think that being able to switch it up and go kind of hard on that training has really broadened me and like made me a more well-rounded athlete in general. But definitely more recently, there's been, I've had a much greater focus on slab climbing, on volume climbing, especially working on ankle mobility, working on being able to balance and shift my weight well. And a lot of it, I think that has been cool has been, you can do a lot more of that type of training. You can put a lot more hours into slab training than you could on just like super raw power overhung climbs. Um, and it's really rewarding to see those progressions too, because it's not just fitness. It's about understanding your body. It's about awareness of your center of gravity. It's about learning how to trust your feet. And there's so many intricate, delicate um, components that are all moving. And I think, yeah, it's a completely different style of climbing, but it is, I know a lot of people have struggled with the transition. A lot of people are not as interested in this new type, but I think that even if it is different, it has a lot of merit in its own right. Yeah, I think it's super cool. I I avoid those um those climbs at my gym because I've scraped my shins and kneecaps down the wall too many oh, times. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Every climber oh nowadays is very scraped knees and shins all the time. Let's talk about nutrition, Melina, which of course tends to go very hand in hand with climbing, um, the good, the bad, and the ugly. What comes to mind when I when I ask you about nutrition and the areas that you've struggled with that aspect of climbing? Um, I think it's no secret that nutrition can be kind of a touchy topic in terms of climbing. And I think that in general, in a sport that is very 
focused on strength to body weight ratio that can kind of it is very common in sports like climbing i've heard it's common in track and dance um and it's definitely something that i've struggled with a good amount i know a lot of people who have and i think that it isn't necessarily talked about very much it's not something that i've really talked about before either um but i think it's really hard it's especially hard when you see other athletes be successful and i think that there's a lot of comparison um that comes in the sport of climbing and in any sport really but i think yeah i think that nutrition plays such an important role in fueling yourself as an athlete and i know when i was listening to Allison's podcast or Allison's episode on the struggle she was talking about longevity as an athlete as opposed to having one really awesome season and then not being able to continue really after that um i think that maybe is slightly the trap that i fell into mm-hmm. especially starting this past season there can be a time when you see really linear gains i think in terms of like you can relate weight and what you're eating to high performance but at a certain point it's no longer sustainable and i think that that's something that i have spent a lot of time thinking about recently i work with a nutritionist now um and it's been a lot of education i think it's another area where i think being more educated um can only be an asset and learning about what different foods do to your body why you need to have different types of foods for example fat um why it's like some v- vitamins are only fat soluble so you need to be eating a lot of fat you need to be doing a lot of things for recovery i was having really bad skin issues for a long time my skin was super dry i know a lot of people would use antihydral and i was the opposite i was using moisturizer on my hands every day um and i learned it was because i wasn't eating enough fat so my skin was basically like tearing because it was so non-pliable i guess um, right i think there's so many ways that not fueling yourself in the correct way it can be detrimental to your climbing in ways that you don't even expect but also it can be very difficult i guess just to like live with just completely outside of climbing and i think that at a certain point i needed to kind of have a reckoning with myself like is this worth it for performance is it even helping my performance and the conclusion that i came to was not really and that if i want to do this for a long time if i want to be successful if i want to have a long career and if i want to get stronger honestly it wasn't even just i can have a long career or a good one it was like i can have a long and good career if i just put the time in now melina thank you for just opening up on this um i i can tell that this has obviously been something that that you've been wrestling with and i imagine also not something that is easy to talk about um just to to friends to family but also then of course here on on a podcast that everybody's going to be listening to thank you for doing it to the extent of which you're comfortable talking a little bit more about it i'd like to just try to learn more about how this realization came what what kind of the evolution of your eating disorder took you know it's it sounds like maybe it started um as you got back into competition climbing and were running a caloric deficit which maybe seemed normal or natural at first but then kind of um went too far is that it was that your experience yeah definitely um i think that basically the first open competition i did for years was one of the north america cups last august So leading into that I think that I was cutting calories but not to a severe extent um 
And I was still making sure I was getting my protein, like enough protein, making sure I was getting carbs. Um, and I think that it was balanced, but still restrictive for sure. And that's and fairly common, that, right? Just so I understand, because yeah. the comp world is not a world that I'm, uh, you know, particularly close to, but it's fairly common to have like building phases and then some cutting phases as you're trying to dial in for like a peak performance. Yeah, I think that some people do it. I think it works for some people. I think some people don't do it and don't feel like it really is necessarily helpful. Um, okay. I think it really depends on the person. But I guess for me, it was a little bit more prolonged. But still, I was seeing results. I think that I was feeling stronger than ever. And I think it's because also I had never really been in a caloric deficit before. And I think that when you have an energy storage, it can be a lot easier to start cutting and feel like you are invincible and feel like it's just kind of this linear trajectory, um, not realizing that you are basically, this is what how my nutritionist described it, is like you're basically running toward a cliff and you feel amazing and you're sprinting and then suddenly things can just change very, very quickly um, when you reach a point where that energy storage is like completely depleted and suddenly you have no energy and there are a lot of other um, negative things that happen psychologically and physically after that. But I, yeah, I was feeling really good. I think that even leading into nationals last year, um, I was restricting, but not quite to, not to a very extreme extent, just to one where I think that I was under fueling, but still performing at a high level. And then between nationals and team trials, I think that I took it to a very big extreme, maybe more than I ever have before, thinking that it would continue to have this positive linear effect. And then come team trials last March, I weighed less than I had, but I also was significantly weaker than I had ever felt before. I was so confused because I'd been putting in hours and hours in the gym. I didn't know if it was overtraining, but retrospectively, it was like I couldn't pull at all in bouldering. Mm. It was like all the power had left my body. Talking to nut nutritionists since then, they've been like, yeah, that is pretty expected because you had no glycogen in your muscles. You just couldn't engage them in the same way. Um, and that competition, I had a really, really good lead performance because I think that the movements were less powerful. And I think that it was still at a point where I maybe could perform in lead just because I, I don't know. I don't think that being lighter is necessarily helpful, but I think that it wasn't as detrimental to not be as powerful for that. But for sure. bouldering especially, I think I saw severe negative. It was just, it was just really, really hard to compete. And it was also confusing because I had felt so good at bouldering previously. Um, I'd had so many good bouldering competitions back to back and then going into that one and feeling not like myself at all. Um, I just didn't really understand it. And I think that that was kind of the moment when I realized this needs to change. This is no longer sustainable. Um, everything I've been doing and really, is it worth it? The amount of like enjoyment that I've had, the, it, it was kind of affecting every aspect of my life in a really negative way. Um, it was affecting my relationships with other people. It was affecting because I wouldn't really go out to eat with anyone. I was incredibly, I was just so focused on what I was eating, how I was, or what I was putting into my body that I think that a lot of aspects of my other, my life were kind of suffering because of it. I think that I wasn't really able to focus in school as well because my brain was also just like not getting the fuel that it needed. I think that, I mean, I've learned from nutritionists also recently that you can make poor life decisions when your brain isn't thinking as clearly. And I think that in general, there are so many things retrospectively 
um, that were affecting me that I had never noticed before. And I just feel a lot more empowered now knowing all that, having that knowledge um, to make better decisions about my nutrition now. Hell yeah. Well, th thank you again, Melina, for opening up on this. Not uh, an easy subject to talk about, to be vulnerable. It's been taboo for so long. Uh, this is just so great for our community uh, for you to be able to share your experience like this. And, you know, I, I think I can understand the allure um, when we're talking about a strength to weight ratio sport. But what's been so fascinating is I've had some of these conversation and you underscored it just now as well, is that, you know, it's an equation of strength and weight. And for so long, or maybe the the um, temptation is to just adjust one of those factors, to adjust the weight so that by comparison, one hopes that their strength is uh, comparatively improved. But a lot of the conversations that I've had, including this one, is that no, there's there's actually two very very equal sides to that. And one can't dial up strength without having the fuel that they need in order to do it. So rather than just try to cut weight, in fact, why not just improve strength? And I guess maybe that's just, um, that's now becoming something that people are embracing and understanding in ways that ha hadn't been, I guess, maybe as popular in the past. I think that I wanted to lose weight because I didn't think that I could get stronger and I don't think that I was yeah giving myself enough credit to be able to get stronger and I put a lot of time into this I put a lot of hours and if I'm not getting the strength benefits from that if my body's not able to recover from it um then I guess like what's the point of all the hard work that I've been doing and that was a decision or that was a something that I realized more recently I owe it to myself I think to have more faith in myself to let myself try something different, something healthier, something more sustainable. Um, when I first got into climbing, I actually kind of only planned on having one season. I know that sounds a little bit dark, but I wanted to have one amazing season and then I wanted to go to law school and never think about climbing again. And I did that one season. I had the success, I think more success than I'd ever imagined I would. And it was really, really cool, really fulfilling. And there were so many things about climbing that I remembered that I loved and I remembered that I maybe wanted to do this for a lot longer and have a lot more longevity and I'm not really, I'm not done yet. So I oh, think yeah. that, yeah, there was a, there was a moment when I realized that I need to be doing the things, I need to be setting myself up for success for years, not just completely breaking down my body and yeah, there's also been a big correlation between not eating enough calories and getting injured, which I've been doing a lot of recently. Um, I feel like everything that I've done is kind of coming back to bite me right now. And it's been a really big learning experience. Um, but I'm, I'm grateful that I'm doing it now because I think that I still have a lot of time to, to change things up. Yeah, good for you. I mean, it just um, is, is really inspiring and admirable to hear that uh, you're working with a nutritionist. You're, 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 you've had this realization, and you're looking at the long game. You're taking care of yourself. Uh, it's just really inspiring, Melina. And you know, it's also something that sometimes people have to experience um, before they can have a realization. Other times, they can share someone else's experience. And you're coming from this this community, this 
elite, you know, at the absolute tip of the spear of competition climbing. And I wonder what your experience is within the comp circuit of how many climbers out there might be struggling with this themselves in secret or um, just haven't been able to vocalize it or or tackle it or maybe just don't want to publicly which is totally understandable if you're a sponsored athlete or if you're just struggling with disordered eating and you're not a sponsored athlete there could be all kinds of shame or judgment that you put on yourself um, that that go along with it as you mentioned in other sports it's, it can be quite prevalent as well so you know what's your perception of nutrition and disordered eating and what athletes are dealing with, both men and women, inside these highest levels of competition climbing. I think that people don't talk about it a lot. And people are talking about it more now than especially when I was young. It was very unspoken. Um, And I think over the years, it's become less taboo. But at the same time, even for people who wouldn't maybe recognize that they have disordered eating and people who wouldn't consider themselves as having eating disorders, I think that just the language that is used and thrown around so frequently in the sport um, can be pretty damaging. I remember just growing up hearing about how you need to be lighter, how people joking about getting fat and not being able to climb well. Um, A lot of people, I think that there's a lot of judgment. There can be judgment when you go out to eat with other climbers, for example, um, about what you're eating and how much you're eating. It's very unspoken, but you can kind of feel that sort of mm-hmm. tension. Um, and I think that one of the biggest disservices I've maybe done for the sport up till now has been not talking about it, honestly. And I've had younger athletes um, actually ask me if I've ever struggled with eating disorders, if I've ever been, if it's ever been something that has affected my climbing or my mental health and denied it, actually. And mm. I think that it was something I wasn't ready to talk about. It was something that I hadn't actually accepted about myself yet. And I think that I was kind of just burying my head in the sand, thinking that if it was helping my performance, how could it be a bad thing? Realizing now that it was a problem, that I was letting it become an issue because I wasn't addressing it, and that I was doing a disservice to the younger members of the community by not acknowledging it, acknowledging that the sport has problems, that the sport places a lot of emphasis on weight loss, on monitoring how much you're eating um, instead of properly fueling. And I think that I owe it to to other members of the sport to be more transparent, to talk about it, to not avoid the issue because it is a problem. And I think it talking about it can be very liberating because other people share a lot of these same experiences. Um, and I think just knowing that other people struggle is I mean, isn't that the point of this podcast? Yeah. I mean, well, thank you. Thank you for bringing it back to the podcast. But um, thank you far more so for having that realization um, and also the courage to open up and be honest with yourself, with the community, with the people who had asked you in the past. You know, it's we're ready when we're ready. And, And for you to be ready now, I think, is the best timing. You said you're working with a nutritionist now. I'm curious what kind of the huge takeaways are or what's maybe like a day in the life of of fueling for for Melina something that the rest of us who don't have nutritionists could could maybe take away yeah like I mentioned before I think that one of the biggest things that I learned recently was the importance of fat in your diet I think that there not only does it 
I mean, you need it to live. Your brain is literally made up of fat and you need fat to like surround your organs to <laughs> stay healthy. Um, but there are so many ways that your performance, your recovery can be, uh, this recovery speed can be increased by eating a lot more fat, a lot more calories in general, more carbs. And fat would be just like nuts, avocados, milk? Like yeah. what's Okay. Yeah, even like cooking your food in oil. I, I think that I strayed away from it just because there's kind of a dialogue, like a fear of fat, um, just kind of in our society, I think. Yeah, you and, think like foods with fat will make you fat or I mean, like it's, you know, the literally the word is fat. And so like if you're already <laughs> thinking about those kinds of things, you're you're in your head about it. And I think that makes yeah. sense. It's also been like marketing brainwashing for, you know, 50 years. Oh, my is... gosh, I know. And there have been so many like, yeah, marketing crazes that have been targeting fat and fat has really been it's really suffered, I think. And a lot of people, yeah, associate it um, with gaining weight and people's trying to get like low fat products, trying to get no non-fat things, um, not realizing that fat is a very important important part. And also in terms of like appetite regulation, um, satiation, when you eat a meal and you don't have any fat, then you can spike and then crash. And that is also not conducive to performance. Um, I think another big thing that I learned was I would go to the gym for five, six, seven hours and not eat anything throughout the entire time. And wonder why I was so, I mean, I was wrecked at the end because I've been there for seven hours. That is also something that tires you out. But I didn't really know before this that you're supposed to like fuel yourself while you're, while you're training, while you're climbing, while you're exercising, you're supposed to eat beforehand, eat something after. I was always under the impression that after you just ate straight protein, not realizing that you need carbs to even, there's no point in eating the protein if you're not eating carbs with it after um, a heavy workout. And your body really needs enough fuel. Your body needs enough calories, not only to recover, not only to have energy to perform, but also just to maintain everything, keep everything healthy. I'll tell you, Melina, usually these nutrition chapters are real shitty, but this was like the <laughs> best, this is like the best nutrition chat that I've had, you know, in a season and a half of, of the struggle. Thank you for well, just thank being you. so yeah. honest with it and accessible and Congratulations also for you. You know, like it, it doesn't mean the struggle's over. I mean, you're under, I'm sure, an incredible amount of pressure, but to be able to have the dialogue, the conversation, to see what's working for you and have a support network, it's really great. Well done. Thank you. And yeah, I think it's something that when I was getting really into climbing and competing, I, I would have liked someone to have said these things, I think. And I think I owe it to everyone else to not only to, I guess, impart the wisdom I'm learning through my nutritionist, but also just to kind of talk about the struggles that I have had, that I am having still, um, just kind of opening that dialogue and making people realize that maybe they're not alone. Let's shift to tactics or technique. And I'm really interested in, in exploring this through the lens of the comp world, maybe talking a little bit about the new style of setting, you know, that, that we've been going towards, but also just through this tactical lens, where, where have you struggled? Um, I think that, yeah, you mentioned that the sport has changed, especially with competition. Um, the types of technique I think you need to have, and there's so many tools I think you need um, kind of in your back pocket now to even read the climbs that you come out and see. There have been climbs, I mean, I can think of a boulder problem at team trials where I spent the entire four minutes trying to jump to a tiny crimp over and over and over again. I don't know why I didn't try something else at any point, but the entire climb, it was not, that was not the beta at all. And I think that there are so many times when 
we can be kind of held back by just by like even reading the climb. Um, I think that a lot of the things, one of the things, the best things you can do for yourself for competition climbing specifically is just getting experience on that type of climbing, doing a lot of different coordination style moves, a lot of different very delicate slab climbing, a lot of climbing on just things that you're not used to. It almost feels like parkour nowadays, which is weird and cool. And I like it a lot. I think that it's something that I haven't always been the best at, um, but I've put a lot of work into it, especially recently. And the sport is changing for sure. It's really diverging, I think, from what you see in like rocks, like real rocks, for example. But I think that it, even though it's diverging, I think it is so cool if you kind of treat it as its own thing. Yeah, I think this is, it's super fascinating. It's obviously incredibly fun to watch. It's really engaging to, to, to watch that style of climbing. But I also, you know, I try to tie it back to like, how can this impact my climbing, right? And so I climb like long sport routes at the Red River Gorge, N nothing like parkour style, but I have a really hard time oftentimes reading crux sections and, you know, how is this going to work for me? What am I even supposed to do here? And the competition bouldering is kind of takes that to like the absolute nth degree, it seems like. And so how do you train that? And how could that maybe even reflect back into other styles of climbing, like outdoor climbing? Um, I think that one of the biggest things that I've done to train it has been a lot of mock comp simulation. Um, going to the gym, maybe with a friend, with I'll go with my brother too. We'll pick out climbs for each other that we know each other really, really well. We've climbed with each other a ton. And I know all the climbs that he's going to struggle on and he knows the climbs that I'm going to struggle on. And we pick <laughs> those climbs for each other. We set up a mock comp and we give each other those four minutes on, four minutes off basically, or five minutes, whatever we're doing for the day. And it basically, we won't let the other person either read it before or try it before. And it's all figuring it out on the spot. And I think that kind of simulating the time, pressure, trying to, a lot of it is mental too, trying to put yourself in that mind state of being in a high pressure environment, kind of pretending there's a crowd, maybe pretending like playing loud music, doing everything I can. I do. I listen to music beforehand the same amount of time I would in the chair in a competition. I put my shoes on at the exact same time that I would right before a round. I stand up at the same time. I try and make everything exactly the same so that I'm feeling that pressure when I go onto the climb. If there are things that aren't working out, trying to be creative. I think that setting has become, setting is such an art form and it's become so creative that a lot of times you have to kind of put yourself in the mind of a setter thinking about, okay, these holds are in this specific position. What exactly could be the movement they're trying to force? And how do you get into like the body position that is required for it? Because a lot of times I'll go into competitions um, and even if I struggle during the round, I'll come back having watched other people do it, having experienced it myself and thought about it for longer and be able to do the climb first go. And that is one of the biggest things that's changed about competition climbing. It tests your strength for sure, but it more tests your execution, um, your thinking, your body awareness, whether you can put yourself in the right position the first time, because a lot of times the moves are not that physically hard. If you're already at that level, the moves should be accessible to you, I think. Yeah, you're so energized right now. I love it. Your 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 energy is making me energized. I'm like I'm like the polar opposite of a comp climber. I never do these kinds of problems when I'm at the gym, but your psych is now making me psyched and I love that problem-solving aspect of it. I really do uh, appreciate kind of getting into that setter's mind. I think that's really rad and 
And you mentioned, you know, when you get together with your brother, you pick these problems that are supposed to be like the anti-style. What What is your anti-style, Melina? Historically, it's been a lot of coordination type movements. I think that in general, it can be something where there's like a foot shuffle, uh, for example, on a slab or something where you're a paddle dino, maybe, for example. Um, mm -hmm. I think that it's something that I just didn't really grow up climbing. I haven't had a ton of experience with it till this past year. And I've been trying to do a lot more of it, trying to just watch a lot of video. I think watching footage is one of the best ways that you can kind of learn movement. Because um, when you watch someone else do it, you can kind of imagine a lot of it is visualization, um, visualizing yourself in those same movements and being able to recreate them, reproduce them when you see them uh, set in the gym or in a competition, for example. But that type of movement was a struggle for me. And I think that just by doing it more and more, it's become less of a weak point. And I am figuring it out. And I think that by identifying weaknesses, you can really kind of target them um, to the point where sometimes they can become your strengths, if not at least more even, and you can well-round yourself a little bit more. Yeah, this has got to be incredibly rewarding to take something that that's truly a weakness and turn it into, if not even, maybe even a, a strength. How often are you working on things that are just totally out of your wheelhouse or, I mean, just crazy stuff, I don't know, hand jams or weird, weird stuff like that? How often are you just kind of like playing around or, or, or messing around in your training? I think that a lot of times um, that is one of the best things you can do is kind of just like fool around with your friends and like do go to the gym, come up with like dumb challenges for each other, trying to do like some dyno, trying to do some like coordination move that what someone makes up. And a lot of times you'll make up things that are completely weird, something you've never seen before. But just by having that adaptability, I think, is one of the biggest assets you can give yourself, especially as a competition climber, because when you've got four minutes and you're thinking, what can I do? You just, when you're an adaptable climber, you have a lot more ideas, I think. And you have experience doing things that make you very uncomfortable, that maybe don't feel so ergonomic. And I think that in general, a lot of the people who are the best are the people who kind of don't, maybe weren't always the most serious when they were little kids, for example. They'd come around and it would just be like, sessions with your friends where you're all pushing each other to do things that none of you think you even can do in the first place um and yeah i think that's pretty cool yeah i dig that it's like it's a good way to break beta as well sometimes you know like if you just totally if you can solve your own problems it, it doesn't really matter what the setter had in mind sometimes yeah absolutely. i feel like i feel like aj and allison are probably a good couple people to hang out with They're, they seem to always be doing crazy ass gym challenges and weird stuff so <laughs> You're in yeah, a I think definitely, definitely. And they know how to f have fun. And I think that being able to have fun, being able to not take yourself too seriously, um, you need to take yourself seriously enough. You need to have dedicated times and training where you're just very focused on one goal and you need to be able to get into that mindset. But I think that sometimes when you lose sight of the fun of it is when the training can kind of feel a lot more arduous, when you can struggle with motivation, when it kind of is like, what exactly is the point? I think there's a really good balance of hard work, hard training, focus training, and then fun and doing things that you maybe never have done before. Maybe you know you just like to go in the gym and prod. Maybe you know you just want to go to the gym and do dinos or something or hangboard, whatever is like fun for you. Um, and yeah, AJ and Allison know how to have fun for sure. 
So yeah, we just kind of segued ourselves into mental game there, talking about the importance of having fun. And especially I feel like for comp climbers where things can be really high stakes and it seems like a very high pressure environment, I, I want to explore this more, Melina. So, uh, you know, before we get specific here, let me just take it general um, as we like to do here. And, and what is an area of the mental game of mindset that has been a struggle for you? Yeah, I think that, I mean, I mentioned that comparing myself to others was a struggle when I was younger. And I think that even if it's not quite the same, it's something that has been lingering. And I think that it's something that, I don't know, I think that mental practice is very much the same as physical practice, where it's something that it's not you can do it or you can't do it, or you're good at it or you're not. It's something that you have to work at, that you have to train regularly, that you have to maintain. Even when you are in a good position, you have to be putting in the time to the maintenance, the energy to sustain something like that. And I think that there have been times when I've had really excellent mental game and times when I've struggled more. Um, I think that one of the biggest things I realized was that I'm very, very good when I know no one else has climbed something. When I go out of ISO and I know for a fact that the boulder hasn't been topped or the rope climb hasn't been topped, and in my brain I'm like, oh yeah, I'm going to be the one to do it. But when I know it's been done, I've struggled with thinking, okay, someone has already done this. Even if I do it, like how impressive is it going to be? It's like it's already been done and now it feels like I have to, I, it's not like I'm trying to be the best. It's like I'm trying to, it almost feels like I'm trying to meet someone somewhere. For um, sure. Which I know that I struggled a lot with that, especially at nationals this past, or a year ago now, coming out of ISO for lead finals, knowing that the final climb had been topped. And I felt like my mental game had been like very perfect that entire season up to literally that moment when the second I knew it had been topped, I think that my brain kind of just, every, all my thoughts just completely devolved and derailed to the point where I got on the climb knowing I wasn't going to make it to the top. And now at this point, I am in ISO and I often will play music so loud in my headphones that I can't hear the crowd ever for anyone's performance. So, and, th and that's how you know, right, for, for listeners is it's not like you're getting a, a report on the back that somebody topped or not, but it's just when you hear the crowd go ballistic, you figure they got to the top, right? Yeah, exactly. And sometimes even the MC will be, will give a pretty big context clue. Um, gotcha. But often, yeah. So that's something that I kind of try and drown out. I like to not know. I like to be a lot more focused on myself, me versus the problem, as opposed to me versus anyone else. And I think that one of the things I've also had to let go has been any focus on goal setting for placement. I don't want to, even if it's like I want to make team, I've kind of let go of that. Hmm. A lot of my goals nowadays have been a lot more focused on a feeling. And I know that it setting specific goals works for a lot of people. I've just learned through trial and error that it's not how I perform the best. I'll go into a round thinking, I want every first go to be my best go. I want to execute or 100% commit to moves. I don't want to be hesitant at all. I want to be like executing 100% or I'll go into a round thinking, I want to trust volume feet 100%, no hesitation there. I want to have very precise foot placement or I want to be able to let go of bad or bad boulders beforehand. If I have a bad climb, I want to completely forget it by the next climb. So I'll go into clumps with very specific focuses like those. Um, but not necessarily, I want to be this person, I want to get this placement, I want to make this 
I want to make team, something like that. I think I've let go of myself in comparison to other people. And I think that's been a blessing and a curse because I can win a comp and still feel like I didn't reach my goal. <laughs> um, and right. it's hard for me to give myself, kind of give myself grace sometimes um, when I set very high expectations for myself that aren't pro- like that aren't placement related at all. But at the same time, I have had events where even if I haven't won, even if I hadn't, haven't reached a placement that I necessarily would be happy with, I still am able to get some satisfaction in the fact that I've maybe reached a goal that I'd set for myself or that I have a lot more data for myself going forward being like, okay, cool. You didn't do great, but these are your weaknesses. This is all a learning experience anyway. I love the training. I think I love the training more than I love the competing. And I think that going into competitions, realizing what I'm maybe missing is as cool sometimes as going into honestly more cool than going into a competition, having a perfect performance and not learning anything. Yeah, that's such a cool perspective to to have. And and I'm sure, you know, obviously it's been an evolution. It's taken some time to find that realization, especially in competition climbing, where it's literally a competition and it's I'm I'm sure or very easy to get caught in this trap of focusing on the results. And, and maybe it's not a trap. It's it's competition climbing. You are competing, but having that process mindset, that growth mindset, as Hazel Finlay talked about last season in in her masterclass on uh, mental game, it just seems like it's it's such a healthy way for all of us to be able to walk away from any session feeling rewarded. And I, I can certainly relate that back to myself when I go out and I'm working on a project and maybe I'm putting some pressure on myself to send because I'm losing time in the season or whatever it is. If the send is the goal and I don't get the send, then I could feel disappointed. But if the goal is to learn something, get a new high point. I love what you were saying there about just trusting your feet. Something as simple as that saying, you know what, I'm going to go out and I want to trust my feet hundred percent. Just the, the general idea of that, I think is, um, it's really exciting. Yeah. I think that it was a lot easier to define myself on victories and failures when I was having a lot of victories. <laughs> um, I think that <laughs> I, I don't know. There've been times when I've been like, yeah, I, what I really like about myself is that I win things, I guess. what That's like something that I feel good about and that I want to lean on that. But even when, even though it feels good when things are going well, I think that in general, it necessarily is not necessarily the best practice just because we're so much more than that. And there are so many things that we put into the sport. I think that I have struggled a lot in the past with giving myself grace with appreciating the work that I've done. So taking us now into our final chapter, focusing on things that you're passionate about, things that are bringing you purpose outside of your own personal climbing. What is that for you? You're you're a recent college graduate, so congratulations. What are you up to now when you're not uh, training seven hours a day every day? Um, Honestly... I, as much effort as I put into climbing, as hard as it's been, so many things, the hardest thing I've ever done has been college, (laughs) I think. Um, I studied physics at the University of Pennsylvania, and I think that there were a lot of times when I just did not know if I was going to make it out. I thought about switching majors very many times, but- Physics does not sound like an easy program to be in, so- um... Why Why did you choose physics? What's no, the definitely there? not. Um, I think that I loved understanding how things work. And I think that it's very similar to how I feel about climbing, where I like to understand the mechanics behind it. 
funnily enough, I think that after I took my first physics uh, course in high school, I improved in climbing just because I understood forces, I understood friction, I understood center of gravity a little bit better. But aside from all that, I think I really, really like pushing myself no matter what I do. I like knowing that I'm doing something that I don't even know if I can do. Um, and I think that putting myself in positions that I know are going to be extremely challenging are the ways that I grow the most. So I think that physics was rewarding in that sense. And then beyond that, right now, I am working in a patent law firm. And I think that it's been really cool to be able to, a lot of people don't really see the correlation between physics and law, but I think that I've been able to apply my physics knowledge a lot, actually, because patent law is so focused on inventions. On I'm working a lot in like the electrical engineering department where I'm doing reading patents for microchips and trying to understand how electrons move in semiconductors, which it's hard. It's really hard. A lot of it is difficult. A lot of it is confusing. Honestly, the, when I first joined this firm, I cried a lot of nights. I spent a lot of time crying because I was so confused all the time. But I think that I like putting myself in positions where I'm struggling, where I'm learning, where I'm growing and nothing is ever the same. Every patent application is different. I mean, every single one is for a novel invention to the point where, I mean, every climb that you get on is completely different, nothing you've ever done before. And it's cool to always be learning and always be growing. And I think that's something that I wouldn't necessarily be fulfilled if I wasn't doing professionally or otherwise. That is so awesome. These these answers are blowing my mind, Melina. I'm such a, like, I'm just <laughs> like a you. dumb podcaster here. Do you have aspirations of going to law school? Yeah. So my plan was, I mean, it was originally to go directly from undergrad to law school, but I think I owed it to myself to to spend some time just climbing for a while. And I mean, I'm working also. I think that I'm the type of person who likes to have multiple things going on. I think that if I only were climbing, I know a lot of people can do that. But if I only do one thing, my identity, I think, becomes so entrenched in that one thing that it's hard for me to retain perspective. Um, I'm also someone who does well when I have more things going on just because I manage my time better. So working simultaneously, a lot of people have been like, whoa, how do you do that? And for me, it actually feels a little bit more natural, I think. Um, plus, I mean, I love climbing, but I also am really excited about physics and law. And I have a lot of interests that I think are... I don't know. I like exploring the things I'm interested in. I like kind of diving headfirst into everything that I do and having a lot going on. So it's been really fun. And I do plan on going to law school, just probably not for a few years. Um, I'm probably just going to continue trying to push it a little more in climbing while I still can. I think that I'd regret it if I didn't at this point. Well, look, there's just no doubt in my mind, Melina, that you're going to excel in whatever it is that you put your mind to. I'm so inspired uh, and also really grateful for this chat today, for your your vulnerability and your honesty. Thank you so much. Thanks for sharing everything that you have. I'm cheering you on from over here in the struggle podcast slash utility closet. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate you saying that. And I had such a fun time. So thank you for having me on. And that wraps up our chat with the very accomplished and very real Melina Costanza. What did you all think of this one? Let us know. You can find us on Instagram at Melina Costanza, at Ryan Devlin Outside, and at The Struggle Climbing Show. Now, in a second, I'm going to hit you all with my takeaways and hook you up with some swag. But first, hold on. Let's support the brands that are supporting The Struggle. 
Shout out to Petzl for being the official gear sponsor over here at The Struggle. I am absolutely loving their gin quick draws as I project at my limit. Y'all, they clip smoothly and inspire full confidence as I try hard and take whip after whip after whip. You can find the gins at your local gear shop or pop on over to Petzl.com to access the inaccessible. And the psych is super high for Fizzy Vantage, y'all. The official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle. Try Crush for jitter-free energy and focus when you need to perform at your peak. I love it. Along with all of their science-backed products that are helping me to take my training and climbing to new heights. You can look for it in Europe on the Epic TV online shop and here in the U.S. at select gyms and, of course, at fizzyvantage.com. Hit that link in your show notes or use code STRUGGLE15 at checkout for 15% off. That's awesome. So the big takeaway from this conversation for me with Melina was, of course, around nutrition, her struggle with disordered eating and and the good and hard work that she's now undergoing with herself to take charge of her health. I think it's really inspiring. And I hope that anybody who's listening to this out there right now who has experience or is experiencing this kind of struggle knows that you're not alone, as Melina said. So reach out find support. I will be happy to help wherever I can. I know Melina will as well. And there are many, many others, um, fantastic nutritionists, some of which we've had on this show. It's a great community. So reach out if you find yourself struggling with disordered eating. Uh, And beyond nutrition, you know, I got to say one of my favorite takeaways is on Melina's reframing of goal setting to be more process oriented and and less kind of results oriented. Um, I've personally just had this habit lately of focusing on chasing after a specific grade or just even clipping chains on a specific climb. And, you know, I feel like that's limiting me. I'm, I'm, I'm really going to try to reframe some of those goals to focus on accomplishments that can come along the way, you know, on my way to hopefully clipping chains on some of these routes that I've targeted for the fall. And so, you know, for the project that I'm working on right now, Jesus Wept, I think that's going to mean this weekend going out and just trying to recover better on route. And, and, and rest better on some of those better holds, um, clipping different draws more efficiently, moving quickly through the easier sections. Those are going to be my goals this weekend, and um, I'm really excited to reframe them in that way. Well, that clips the anchors on this episode. Big love for all of the patrons out there. Thank you so much for supporting the work that myself and this scrappy little team of climbers here at The Struggle are putting into bringing you this content. If you're not yet a patron, I totally understand. There's like a million things out there that you probably already subscribe to. So my feeling on that is what the heck is one more, right? <laughs> Pop on over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show to check out the tiers, the perks, the prices that we've got. Look, for about the price of a fancy cup of coffee or a cheap beer each month, you can help me and my friends over here. Uh, including my dogs and cat that are snoring at my feet right now at midnight as I'm editing this to keep going, to make more inspiring apps like the one that you just heard here with Melina. Um, And then you also get some cool stuff like exclusive access to pro clinics, early and ad-free episodes, and some super cool swag. So check it all out. If you're in a position to support, I will be forever grateful. Hey, did you know The Struggle is carbon neutral in partnership with the Honold Foundation? Have you heard of the Honold Foundation? Have you heard the word Honold in relation to rock climbing ever? Why am I asking so many rhetorical questions? 
because it's midnight and I'm loopy in the podcast slash utility closet. But y'all, if you're not familiar with the work that Hummel Foundation is doing, it's awesome. They are supporting some incredible projects and they're taking risks like no other nonprofit organization that I've ever seen in action. They're taking big swings in order to get big results. And that is what planet Earth needs right now. Pop on over to HummelFoundation.org to check it all out. They're doing awesome stuff. The Struggle's a proud member of the Plug Tone Audio Collective, and this episode was hosted and produced by me, Ryan Devlin. Hey, Ferris, you want to do the tagline? Yeah. All right, hit it. The struggle makes us stronger. Yeah, it does. All right, let's climb hard and do good things in the world. See you next week.